0: But for myself, you know, I ride my horses along the river here and out in the canyons. I love to hike and run with my dogs. I hunt, I fish, and I think one of the very best ways to to connect with nature is to simply forage, garden, farm, hunt, and fish. I think if your daily bread, if a part of it comes is is directly connected to the landscape that you call home, um, and you're actually taking that into your actual cells and your sinew and your marrow and your um, in your body. I think that's the most powerful thing that anyone can do to connect themselves to nature, to the earth, to life and death cycles. I just think our vitality is found in that connection and that's something that's really important to me. So,
1: Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast in partnership with Modern Huntsman. I am your host Byron Pace. It is April the 1st and this is episode 203. These shows are out every two weeks, and at the moment we are alternating between the Living with Nature series, presented by Swarovski Optic, which is what you're going to hear today, and more longer form episodes. The Living with Nature series is about how people from all walks of life connect with nature. And to tease this out of them, I ask five questions. If you want to hear how this series started, go back to episode 197, when I chatted with Ben Lizdus, the business development manager for Swarovski Optic in North America. In two weeks' time, you will get the very last installment of our special limited series, from the field, which has been following the conservation stories at Zambezi Delta Safaris in Mozambique. These shows have been a totally new format for us, with a much higher level of production, and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the recent episodes. Tag me on social media at ByronJPace, or shoot me an email through the website ByronPace.com. In this episode, I chat with Jillian Lukuski, who some of you may know as the Noisy Plume from her social media accounts and website. She is a farmer, writer, photographer, silversmith, and above all, a child of nature. She has previously appeared in Modern Huntsman and has an incredibly moving article in Volume 9, which is going to be due out in the next couple of months. Before we hear from Gillian, a thank you to all the Patreon supporters who help make this podcast possible, and especially to the top tier supporters who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South are Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabroski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. If you would like to hear more uh, from Gillian, you can find her online at The Noisy Plume, and you can read stories from her on the Modern Huntsman website, modernhuntsman.com. Gillian, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast and the Living with Nature series... I'm so excited that we finally managed to connect because I totally screwed up last time with time zones in different parts of the world and you were on the phone oh, on the phone on the on Zencaster, which is how we record the podcast like two hours before I was on and then I was on and you weren't on so I apologize
0: Oh it's okay time differences are a disaster they're <laughs> always tricky to navigate and then there's daylight savings and all that ridiculousness that you've gotta deal with too so don't you worry about it Byron I'm um, happy to I'm be looking here. forward
1: <laughs> no, I'm glad to have you on, um, particularly because we've I've seen your work coming through the Modern Hun- uh, Huntsman editorial process before, and we've spoken before, but I have never actually met you in person. So I'm excited to go through these five questions with you today. But before we start going through this, why don't you just paint a picture of, of your life and what it looks like because whenever i read your stories or whenever i see your posts on social it has this very sort of calm romantic feel about it that i'm sort of very envious of your life most of the time
0: oh well thank you for saying that and it's probably that situation where i'm very calm on the surface and paddling like hell like a duck on a (laughs) pond you've heard that saying i'm sure but i mean i um my husband and i have worked really hard to build a life that we really love and we live on a small working farm in Southern Idaho, um, right on the bank of the beautiful Snake River. Um, my husband just actually retired from a smoke jumping career. He was a smoke oh, jumper wow. for 13 years and a hotshot for two years, so um, I couldn't take, uh, this, I couldn't take his work season anymore because I'm running our farm by myself. What does uh,
1: that look like when he was away?
0: uh, he would start work in April and, end work in October. And, um, he was jumping out of the McCall smoke jumper base, which is about four hours from our farm. So it's, he was living on base basically, um, for six months of the year. And, you know, when the fire season was picking up, he was all over the Intermountain West, wherever, wherever they needed smoke jumpers, basically. So, um, And like I said, we've got a small working farm, so I was trying to manage our farm. Uh, We've got a hay crop that goes to market, and we also grow heirloom um, organic garlic for market as well. So I was managing all of that while trying to... Put to, while trying to manage a writing career, uh, photography work, and uh, working silver studio here at home. So it pretty it's pretty hectic for me. Yeah, I did that for fifteen years, and now I'm done. So um, he heard my <laughs> he heard me crying out for no more, and he retired. So I'm really thankful to. This will be my first um, year ever of having him home, you know, year round and working together side by side on our farm. It's going to be really great.
1: Slightly slower pace of life for him. So when you say um, your farm, like, just describe that to me. I'm trying to get a picture in my head of, of how big it is and how many, how much produce or how much variety there is, and what you're actually sal- selling, or oh. h- how do you make it work?
0: Well, great. I would describe our place as a single family working farm. Most of what we're raising here is for the is for my my family's consumption. You okay. know, meat chickens. Um, we raise Cooney Cooney pigs, which is a lard pig. Um, we eat our pigs. They're not just pet pigs. Um, and then we keep horses, ducks, turkeys, chickens, geese, all of that kind of stuff, and a huge garden and fruit orchards. And that's just basically for our family. We grow um, an orchard hay crop, which is a really great horse hay that sells out every year. And we, that's about uh, 13 acres of hay that we are growing. And we just start, this year, we're adding on a neighbor's section of land, which is another five acres that we'll put to hay. And then we grow this heirloom garlic that we also sell ourselves through our online farm shop, and then this year we'll be doing farmers' markets in Ketchum as well. Up in Sun Valley, Idaho. Um, we're not a very big farm, so that's like 20 acres total that we're farming, but're okay. every square inch of our place is irrigated off of the Snake River, which makes our land like really po- really prolific. Like we can do a lot because we're not dry farming. Um, and I mean, yeah, that's it in a nutshell, really?
1: <laughs> a million questions before we actually get into the questions
0: here.
1: in terms of uh your day to day existence and, and eating, how much of that comes from your small holding, and how much of that are you having to bring in from outside?
0: Oh, well, you know we still shop in grocery stores um, you know f- from time to time, like uh, in the wintertime, but we're um eating you know i i'll not go to the grocery store for like 4 months or 5 months in the summertime when our growing season's really you know rolling along here we big game okay. hunts we're putting a cup usually two elk in the freezer every year along with like a pronghorn or a mule deer usually and then um we use all that pork from our own pigs in our own game grinds oh, so I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. The kuni Kunis are such a great lard pig. They're really nice for like a smaller farm like we have too cuz pigs can be pretty destructive. They
1: They can, the yeah.
0: Yeah, and um and then we do our own meat our own meat chickens and turkeys which are just it, the quality of that meat is just incredible compared to what you get in a grocery store. And then I do a ton of I mean, I'm kind of I'm a little bit of a I don't like to use the word homesteader because it's because I'm from Saskatchewan and I comprehend what a homestead is and what pioneers actually did when they came in and started a farm from scratch. But, you know, I do a ton of fermenting of all my garden vegetables. I do a ton of preserving. Um, I dehydrate a lot of herbs from my garden and make my own tea blends and all that kind of stuff, too. So I'm kind of, you know, I put up a lot of our food that comes out of our garden that we continue to eat through the winter months. So, I mean, I can't give you an exact percentage, like we're not growing a wheat here of any kind. So we're, you know, we, I buy organic flour for baking and that kind of stuff too. But I I think like probably 80 to 85% of what we eat in our home and what we share with, with like friends and neighbors is coming off of our own farm or coming off of public lands. That's tremendous.
1: That's yeah. so good. That's so amazing. Uh, That's so I'm cool. gonna have to. I'm gonna have to come and and learn some learn some skills from you because I well, I'm very much <laughs> I'm definitely not utilizing my garden that I have mainly because I'm not here a lot. But I do every now and then plant something and then. Like potatoes are an easy one because they kind of look after themselves. Oh, My yeah, dad's sure. very good at <laughs> providing the family with with produce during the summer months. And that does go around around the two sons and they always have and friends because there's always far more than any of us can eat.
0: Well, a huge joy of growing your own food and raising your own food is sharing it with people that you love. That's I think it's actually in our DNA to share the bounty of the harvest. So I not just yeah, so and he, if, even if you can't come and stay and learn something from us, you're always welcome for a meal. We love to cook for people. So.
1: <laughs> well, I don't need to be asked twice. I was Just one one last thing before I ask you uh, the first question. It, okay. Because you, you bring up an interesting point there about sharing, and I think it is really built on us to share either a kill or produce if it's something that we're growing or a catch if we're trapping it or if it's, you know, fish. How often do you ever see somebody go to the supermarket and buy extra food and then go share it? Never. <laughs> it doesn't happen.
0: No, it never happens. Unless I mean, unless someone comes to their door doing a food drive for a local food yeah. bank, and, and you give them the expired can of lima beans from your yeah. pantry. I, but mean, I so people- often
1: go into my freezer if someone happens to be like stopping past the house. Like, hey, do you want? Here's yeah. a, a bag of ground. Uh, you know what we we'd call mints or ground meat. Um, for, you know, venison, would you like one? And of course the answer is always yes, but you'd never do that if you'd actually gone to the shop and buy it. There's a very different mentality in how we, we take personal enjoyment out of sharing something that we have sourced.
0: Yeah. I, um, well, I think that urge to share is really community is like community driven. Um, and I think also when you're growing your own food and you're raising your own food, it has an immense value cuz you know the blood sweat and tears that went into into getting that food or hunting it or growing it and weeding the damn garden all summer long like yeah. you have a sense of the of the value of it and when you and when you have someone come and visit and you send them away with a with a roasting chicken or a chunk or an elk roast or something you're really, i mean that's it's really one it's it's a love language to actually share that thing that you value so highly with a person that you love. That's what it is for me anyway. It might be for someone else. It might be just that their, their freezer is too full and they're about to go elk hunting again. But for me, it's, it's like my, it's how I say I love you is to cook a meal that we've raised and hunted and grown entirely ourselves. And every on everything on the plate, you know, has, has known our touch or we've hunted it. Um, That's like, that's how I tell people that I love that. I love them. Basically, I so. like
1: that. I like that a lot. So yeah. I, I, I almost wonder whether we've kind of covered the first question because you probably connect with nature every moment of every day. But to question one, how do you connect with nature on a regular basis? Is there something that stands out? Uh, stands out for you?
0: Yeah, I've thought a lot about this question. Um, well, while, while we've been trying to get this podcast done, um, I wanted to start by saying that I don't actually believe humans are separate from nature. I think
1: Agreed. we're part of
0: it. I think that. Um, some people are living in a way that that's that keeps them separate from it. But I think as soon as you walk out the front door of your house or your apartment building, if you're outside, I think you're in nature. Um, and if you're like me, you've done a really good job of dragging nature into your house, too, because my decor is almost exclusively like dead stuff and feathers and skulls and antlers and seashells. That's and my whatever. kind of vibe. Yeah. And so, you know, I keep it in my home, like surrounded. I'm surrounded by it inside of my home. And I've tried to keep my home, you know, I tried to keep my furniture wooden and, you know, wooden, cotton, wool, leather, all that stuff that's actually like natural and not synthetic. That's what I like to surround myself with inside of my nest in my home here. But I think as soon as you step outside and, to, and you're standing in fresh air, I think you're in nature. So I think, I mean, you don't have to you know, buy a bunch of gear and go to some far off distance distant place to have an experience in nature. I think as soon as you go outside, you're in it and you can be enjoying it and be re- and you can be refreshed by it. Um, but for myself, you know, I ride my horses along the river here and out in the canyons. I love to hike and run with my dogs. I hunt, I fish, and I think one of the very best ways to to connect with nature is to simply forage, garden, farm, hunt, and fish. I think if your daily bread if a part of it comes is is directly connected to the landscape that you call home, um, and you're actually taking that into your actual cells and your sinew and your marrow and your um and your body, I think that's the most powerful thing that anyone can do to connect themselves to nature, to the earth, to life and death cycles. I just think our vitality is found in that connection, and that's something that's really important to me. So.
1: Well, that's very poetic and beautiful, and I couldn't agree more with you. i I often think about I often think about heating myself because, especially at this point in time, because it's at coming the end of winter. Spring is just starting. There's some elements of spring I'm beginning to see, but all the way that I heat my house is with wood that I go and collect. And I think that it's very difficult for people to appreciate how nature can provide for you as part of nature. In this case, the simple act of burning wood, if you've never actually gone and sourced it with your own hands and split it with your own hands and put it in your own fire, the same as you're saying with regard to food. And I really, I really appreciate the heat that comes out of my fire because it doesn't come with the flick of a button with oil in the oil tank that came out of the North Sea. And you, you do appreciate things much more, and I think you're much more careful about how you use it.
0: Well, yeah, you know, it prevents you, it makes you aware of your consumptive behaviors is maybe a good way to put it. And when something doesn't come as easy as a flip of a switch and just in, you know, because for a lot of people, heating a home, like you just said, is a completely invisible act that they have no connection to in any way whatsoever. And, and going out and collecting your own firewood is... And then making a fire with it is kind of a really simple daily miracle that can plug you into, into something that's a lot bigger than yourself. I love that your answer is your is like firewood. I just imagine you now shivering in your home and huddled by your fire. <laughs> well,
1: I've lit the fire, <laughs> fire in my office, but I would be shivering in my home if I hadn't lit the fire in my house.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Um,
1: and it's just, I, I kind of, it's very, for me, it's very therapeutic on Saturday to tomorrow, half of my day is going to be used going taking my old 1972 Series 3 Land Rover about a mile over the back of the hill here to a forest that they've thinned, um, a hardwood forest that they thinned about two years ago. And I'm going to go and do a couple of loads and fill up my wood store. And some people might say, you know, why the hell would you want to use your Saturday morning doing that? And you wouldn't want to do something fun. But I get a hell of a lot of enjoyment out of that. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it all the time. And I don't have to because I only have a small house. But there is something very fundamental in being a human, in sourcing something that helps you survive, and most people don't source anything, yeah. other than going to the shops.
0: Yep, it's totally true. It's kind of sad. It's true. It's kind
1: of sad. Well, <laughs> let's 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 make this more optimistic now. Do you? <laughs> second question: Do you have a good example of how companies, um, people, or organizations? are helping to rebuild this the bridge or the connection with nature. So like you were saying, as soon as you're outside, you feel like you're in it. But a lot of people have dissociated themselves because of living in cities or yeah. just the way that they consume, like just what we've been talking about with nature and don't really appreciate how they're able to exist on this planet and don't realize that actually nature is what provides that existence.
0: Yeah, this is such a great question. Um I thought long and hard about it and I and you know I live in Idaho, which is the holy land of public land in the USA. We have so much public land and our farm here actually is flanked on two sides by Bureau of Land Management land. So I can ride my horse off our property and be on millions of acres of public land here and I never take that access for granted. So my my main answer for this question for you is that I'm a big fan of any organization that is working um, as hard as they can to maintain and restore access to public land here in the USA. So um, BHA is doing a great job of it. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, Randy Newberg is always <laughs> yep. sermons from the pulpit on this topic. He's so awesome. We love him. Um, you know, our public land is for the people in this country. It's for the people, it's for the wildlife, and it's for the land itself. And it's really not okay to block off our access to the thing that we own as citizens or permanent residents. Res- I'm a, I'm a Canadian. I'm a permanent resident of the USA, but I pay my taxes here. So I consider myself, an, you know, in ownership of our public lands. Uh, we've got um, a spring creek here in the Hagerman Valley that's a, actually a blue ribbon trout stream and the state of Idaho leased it to a private fish hatchery a few years ago. And, they, and the hatchery posted it for liability reasons. And now nobody can fish that stream, even though it's flowing through public land. And we kind of see this happening all over the Intermountain West. And it, for me, it's really discouraging. I think any organization fighting against lost access is doing extremely important work for us. And once public land access is blocked by private landowners or gated off or posted It's really difficult to get that access back. It's like, you know, it's like freedom or liberty. Once a piece of it's taken from us by our governments, we rarely get that freedom returned to us. And I think that our public lands here in the West are really a thing to be celebrated, a thing to be protected and honored. And, um, you know, we've got this really beautiful opportunity to practice good stewardship over that land every time we're out on it. They're here for us to enjoy, to gather our food from, to take our rest and our solace from. They're really our public land is important for the soul, for our individual souls, and the actual culture of of Americans. And to be locked out of them and to lose access to them is is almost an act of immorality, in my mind. You know, our public lands are ours to enjoy, and I'm so thankful that we've got organizations fighting for our access to what is ours.
1: Yeah, if people don't have access to the great outdoors and can immerse themselves in in more wild nature where the hand of humans is less obvious, because the hand of humans is everywhere, but it's where, where it's possibly less obvious. It's very difficult for people to appreciate why these things need to be protected. Exactly. And so access is is vitally important.
0: Yeah. I mean, you live in a country where... I mean I would say you have less access like less public land than us here in the internet. Yeah, but our history. access is more.
1: This is a misconception. Yeah, we have we right have to roam everywhere in Scotland.
0: Tell me all about it.
1: Yeah, so I mean the vast majority of land is private. Yeah. Um however, uh we have access to almost all of it through a law that I think it was passed in the early 90s which was right to roam.
0: Yeah, which means you that can, you could trespass on everything, right?
1: Yes, ex- essentially. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um so that's not that doesn't include so the caveat with that is people can go and immerse themselves in nature on almost any land,
0: yeah. um,
1: but you can't necessarily take. Right. so that's that's the the difference with your some of your public lands where you're actually able to with over-the-counter permits or whatever the system might be go and harvest something but equally we do have some systems in place which are kind of the equivalent some of like the Crown estate which are very cheap you know 20 like 25 thirty dollars a year and you can go and hunt geese on the foreshore mm-hmm. um, or, and you can buy over the uh, the equivalent of over-the-counter tags I suppose um from different estates but in terms of actually getting your feet into the wilderness as it were you can pretty much do that anywhere here in Scotland the the same is not true in England um Mm. so yeah in some respects we have more access than you and then in other respects to do with harvestable take we have less
0: Mm, very interesting very interesting yeah
1: so to question three is there a conservation story happening right now that you are particularly passionate
0: about um, yes, uh, there's a couple. I tend to keep my eyes and my heart really tuned into what's happening locally in my community and my home state. Because if I start to look too far away, I feel very discouraged by all the <laughs> chaos and everything that's happening in the world. There's plenty of I
1: stories am- to depress you. <laughs> yes, in the world. Yeah,
0: exactly. So I am um, watching the great Idahoan wolf debate with great interest. I, I bring it up at with great risk on your podcast, but... <laughs> I have. tell me extremely- more I
1: want to know because I know that uh you know we'll I mean across North America not just in your state it has been I mean it's been a hot button issue for years but particularly in the last 12 months it seems to have appeared in my feed sort of every week
0: yeah it's a hot topic um and I and you know I have an extremely nuanced position on wolves. I think actually most Idahoans are really reasonable people, and they also hold nuanced positions on most topics that are hyper-polarized and politicized. But as always, the loudest and most extreme voices seem to be the voices that dominate the narrative surrounding wolf management in Idaho, which is really unfortunate and frustrating. Um, I'm sure it's frustrating to watch too, but I personally, I'll speak personally on this topic, I really love to have wolves on the landscape here. I think they're absolutely incredible. They're magical. We elk hunt a basin with um, an established wolf pack and it actually makes it a lot harder for us to hunt there because they change herd dynamics so much, but I still want them there. I mean, they make it more difficult for me to get my food, but I still really want them there. Uh, They totally thrill me. Um, We'll hear them fire up and start howling right around our teepee at night when, um, when we're out there hunting and it's totally magical. Um, but that said, I also think that they need to be managed because I also really love having elk on the landscape here. And like many Idahoans, um, elk sustains my family. We eat elk every year. Most meals during the week is, is elk in our household. Their presence, the presence of elk is really important, um, to the health and well being of so many families in Idaho. Fishing, trapping, and hunting is a constitutional right in this state, um, and they're also so important for the ecosystem of the Intermountain West. Um, we we need our elk and we want our wolves in this state. And I hope that we can find some kind of balance and and some solutions. And we really hope that wildlife management decision-making will be handed back to the Idaho Fish and Game Commission instead of being hijacked by politicians in this state. I get so frustrated when I see legislation being passed um, for wildlife management. I think that job really needs to be in the hands of Idaho Fish and Game and, it, and the decision-making process for how we manage these animals needs to be rooted in data and science. It cannot be based on people's feelings. I mean, the moment we start basing all of our wildlife management decisions on people's feelings is going to be how it's going to be the day we destroy Idaho and the whole uh, the whole intermountain west of the USA. And, It'll be really sad. So,
1: And yet we're seeing that around the world all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Everything being based on people's feeling, everything just being an emotional trigger for people all the time. People we got to set our emotions aside and really, you know, try to think things through and, and um, pay attention to, you know, the data and the science behind what's really going on on these landscapes and hear from everybody. I mean, ranchers are seeing, are seeing what they're seeing hunters are, you know, hunters have things to report from the drainages and basins that we're hunting wildlife biologists are, doing their research and we just all need to come together and talk about it so that we can figure out what's actually going on with, with all of these animal populations in our state so we can proceed with managing them appropriately. But I love the wolves. I love them. I think they're so cool. (laughs)
1: Last week or not even last week, like four days ago when I was in Tajikistan, we were, we were hunting uh, Ibex there and it was the last morning. I only had half a day left and a wolf walked past me 20 meters away.
0: How did you like it?
1: It was phenomenal.
0: Did it just, did it put your, did it give you goosebumps on your arms? Do you know, it
1: it didn't. I just, I was so mesmerized and surprised. I mean, the thing is I'd seen um, evidence of wolves the entire week. And last time I was there in December, I'd seen their tracks everywhere. I'd seen uh, wolf shit everywhere, but I just hadn't actually seen them. And I'd seen bears, but I hadn't seen wolves. So I was kind of half expecting at
0: some point maybe
1: we would see one, but it t- it did totally take me by surprise.
0: Well, you uh, ended up having a really, like a close encounter with one. That's so thrilling. Anytime I see it, a big predator kind of face to face, it's absolutely thrilling.
1: Yeah, it was. It, it made my entire week. Um, just see and I only saw it for about fifteen seconds. It, it was essentially we were at the bottom of this valley, and we we were sat with our sort of back in some thin trees. And then in front of us, about 20, 30 meters away, the, the the sort of cliff started to climb. And it walked on the lower part of this this cliff in front of us in this little window and then sort of slipped over the brow. And it was n- didn't seem phased at all. I mean, it, it must have known that we were there. I guess we were probably um upwind initially otherwise it wouldn't have come towards us but it yeah. didn't seem to be particularly faced. and there was another two in the same valley i didn't see them but the the guide saw another two this wolf was white but the other two mm. were dark uh and it was they are f- phenomenal and i've only uh, the only other time i've spent time with wolves and it wasn't really time with wolves was in yellowstone itself but they were about a kilometer away and i was looking at them through binoculars so it's a very different experience
0: yeah, I mean they're kind. Of, I always think the Yellowstone critters are all kind of tame animals too. It's nice to see like a wild wolf in a wild place.
1: Oh yeah, well this was the distant mountains of Tajikistan. Next stop <laughs> Afghanistan. Um, this was you this the real was thing. as, as it gets. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Very cool. Um, You'll, remember You'll remember that forever.
1: Oh, it's definitely going to stick with me yeah it's it is probably the highlight of that trip even though i was there i was there for an entire week and that wasn't the purpose of being there but that was the highlight of the trip cool uh is there somebody in particular because i would say that let me let me backtrack here i would say that between the stories that you write and the posts that you make and the, the photography that you do there's you are in fact and i i know this for a fact because i've actually met a couple of people that have brought your name up you are definitely inspiration for a lot of people in terms of forcing themselves to to connect in a more authentic way with nature but is there somebody that inspires you that's doing great work in the outdoor space
0: oh that's i don't know if i can drop a specific name for you is that but i have okay okay well I will say that something I see a lot of here in Idaho, Idahoans are very outdoorsy people. And something I see a lot of here that really deeply inspires me is like parents out hunting with their kids or camping or fishing with their kids, raising their kids outside. Um, I just have so much respect for that. And I think, and that this isn't like related to hunting and fishing industry or like big conservation organizations or anything like that. But we've been out elk hunting and I've, and I, we've seen like dads out hunting with their daughters, like way up on top of big ridge lines or, you know, whole families out chucker hunting behind their gun dogs. Like when I see parents out there with their kids, I just have this. Really deep sense that those kids are going to be okay, (laughs) and and they're going to grow up with a love for the land and an understanding of their belonging to it. You know, they're less likely to be exploitative of land or to be afraid of death or hysterical about death. And I just think they're going to have such a deeper understanding and personal relationship to land and to nature, and they're going to have an idea of what you know, good stewardship should look like. And I think when you have a basic level and respect for all living things and for land, when that's been modeled to you by the adults in your life, I think you can't help but to grow up into a human being who improves the world and who, who gives more than they take when they're outside. And I just, I just love it. When I see outdoor families doing outdoor stuff, I just, am like, yes, that's so great. And I just, I also think that, you know, When we get our households in order and we're when we're when we have resilient families and strong families i think that leads to strong communities and i think that's like a foundation for a healthy world um and just think sometimes we think too big with this stuff i think you know we think we need to build and employ a massive industry to create change but i just think deep long-lasting change happens when we get our households in order when we raise our families outside and when we've got our families plugged into our, to our local neighborhood and community and our local landscape, I think that, I just think that generates health and strength and, and people who are tuned into nature and truth and beauty and are living lifestyles that really create and maintain healthy landscapes.
1: I, uh, I totally agree. And I think that the, the march to urbanization, which has happened over the last 50, 60 years, has definitely uh, diminished that community that you're talking about because it doesn't really exist that much outside the household when you're living in a very built-up area. And instead of the kids going out at the weekend or in the evening in the summer and mucking around with a spade in the garden, or maybe shooting tin cans with their air rifle or going with their parents to fish the river or hunt the mountains at the weekend, they're looking at a screen that's three inches by two inches wide playing games. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And I don't know how, that you, how, how anybody can expect a human being to care about the planet around them when their view of the planet isn't real. It's virtual.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, it's, a, a, it's a really dangerous trend. I think
0: Oh, it's a terrible trend. It's bad for creativity. It's bad for, it's just bad for everything. And, you know, I'm here in the West and we've had just so many, just thousands of people move into Idaho over the past year. I, yeah. I think a lot of them are like COVID refugees in a lot, of, <laughs> yeah. um, which is, which is, I have a lot of compassion for them. I I understand I've had a lot of freedom here over the past two years living on a farm in the middle of nowhere and just having my life really continue and being able to work every day and not really feeling the grip of the, of the COVID related chaos. So I can understand people wanting to move out into space and be more dispersed on a landscape than, than um, their former lives um, allowed them. So, but it is heartbreaking out here to see all these ranches and farms selling out and being subdivided and seeing homes going in where homes shouldn't be. That's really distressing. And, you know, something else, another answer I could give to this question is just all the farmers and ranchers out there who are hanging on to their land and continuing um, to return to regenerative farming and um, ranching practices and instilling a love for the land and for that work in their kids so that those kids want to stay out here on a rural landscape and continue farming and ranching and keeping that land open for future generations and for wildlife and for the health of land itself and and waterways. I mean, that's something that's really encouraging to me to see here in the West is is um, farmers and ranchers continuing, to, you know, to work hard and to adapt and to keep hanging on. So they're really And it's hard
1: too. because farming is difficult. And well, a lot of farmers are very asset rich. They're often not. Uh, they're they're. That's it. That's that's where their money is. It's in it's in the asset. It's in what they're sitting on. Yeah. Um, but they're cash poor. And if a developer comes and offers you a colossal sum of money to sell up, yeah. how on earth do you say no to that? Even if well, yeah. because for your personal life, it's going to make your life a lot better, but not necessarily the landscape.
0: Well, yeah, and you see you are the big, our big cities in this country are are looting the rural areas of their children of the next generation that would stay and stay on and ranch and farm. So you've got ranchers and farmers who don't have anyone to to um, hand that to hand their wealth onto their wealth being their land. Um, so yeah, it's hard to, really hard to watch. I always tell people I'm like, man, the big cities take our we grow all the food for them, and then they take the kids too. And they take <laughs> and our they, children. Yeah. yeah,
1: I hadn't really thought of it like that, but there is a, a massive um, brain drain from the countryside yeah. to urban yeah. areas.
0: And I understand so, ranching and farming is really hard. I mean, there, hardly anybody does it because it's really difficult work. Most people don't want to work that hard. So, I mean, I I can understand, but it's also there's also a lot of. Um, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a lot of hard work, but I think hard work is really a beautiful way to live your life. So, um you know, hard meaning, you know, hard physical labor and and meaningful work, I think is a really beautiful way to do life. So
1: I don't know that there's a a lot of living that goes on for an entire lifetime without truly living. And uh, I'm not sure whether you can really do that in an office, but uh, it's a discussion I've had on this podcast before. So with that, to the last question, do you have a standout memory where you felt like you really connected with nature.
0: I feel like I have memories like that have happen every single day. I have <laughs> You're memories-
1: so fortunate that, that is that, that that is your answer because for so many people that's just not the case.
0: Well but I mean it started I can't like even my earliest childhood years are just just rooted in outdoor memories i can, I can remember standing barefoot in a horse pasture in Ridey Mountain National Park, Manitoba, Canada, barefoot I walked out there barefoot from the house, my horses are beside me, and I'm picking sun warmed raspberries off of a wild raspberry bush like i or spending an afternoon catching frogs and tadpoles with a butterfly net on a beaver pond just down from That's the house. best
1: didn't we all it's do that?
0: Oh my gosh, I spent hours, half my childhood involved a butterfly net. Um, I saw my first mountain lion when I was walking with my golden retriever on a, a national park road and I was about five. And I went home and told my dad I saw a really big yellow cat, and he thought I meant like a neighboring tomcat. And I was like, no, it was like the size it was like bigger than um Wayjacks, who was our dog at the time. And my dad realized that I uh, had had like a mountain lion walk right past me on this road. Um um, I mean, I used to ride, I grew up in the bush up in Canada. So I would ride, you know, I'd play hooky and pretend I was sick, and then the school bus would come and go, and then I'd jump out of bed and go ride horse, go ride a horse with my dad on patrol for the morning. <laughs> Went to picnics with my family with hot chocolate and hot dogs in, in whatever park we were living in, catching walleye and pike with my dad, canoe tripping with my family in northern Saskatchewan, which is just so beautiful up there. Uh, watching waterfowl on the sloughs at my grandparents' wheat farm in Saskatchewan. I mean, I've lived. I feel really fortunate to say that, to be able to say that the sum of my outdoor living is far greater than the sum of my indoor living at this junk at this point in my life. I just feel so fortunate that I can say that I, I've been outside way more of my life than I've been inside, and it's all been so beautiful.
1: Well, Jillian, you you truly are a child of nature, and and your upbringing. That explains a lot of the life that you live now, I think, to me. Because how I started this was me saying that I was kind of envious of the calmness of how your life seems to me. Because you are existing on this planet as part of nature. And that comes across in all the conversation we've had today. And it comes across in all of your writing. And I think there's a lot to be said for that.
0: Well... I'm glad that I'm able to convey a bit of that in my writing. I mean, I go outside because I'm tired of being inside and I want to brush up against really simple miracles. So I find like, I, well, I guess I'm just really thankful that, that my, my family was kind of poor growing up and outside was always a free thing that we could do together as a family. And my mom was all about economy and frugality and, you know, we could have done trips to Disney World or we could have done, you know, family vacations, but instead we would get in canoes and and go. Fa- Sounds go like catch a good dinner. trade. I Sounds mean, like I, a great I feel, trade. i feel kind of thankful that that was what my family could afford to do when we when I was young and growing up. It's given me such an appreciation for what is immediately around us every day and just the simplicity of watching a sunrise that can fill up your tank for the for the entire day it's so beautiful so outside going outside is free for everybody i mean you've got public spaces everywhere in big cities even where you can go and you can just you know have your heart filled up by really simple beauty and really simple free miracles every day everywhere it's really i mean it's magnificent to be on this planet
1: jillian thank you so much for sharing your living with nature i am absolutely confident that the people listening will be taking inspiration from this conversation that we've had for the last 30 minutes so thank you so much for your time and i look forward to hopefully having the opportunity to meet you in person at some point
0: fingers crossed byron thanks for having me on today you're such a you're such a delight